Radio Mano Papachango. I hope your week's going well. This is Chris coming to you from Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Uh, I didn't bring any recording equipment with me on this short trip down here. I just came down to see a friend and uh, get a little sun. I know that sounds ridiculous to those of you who are living somewhere with snow and rain, but even Los Angeles has been kind of dark and gloomy recently. And uh, anyway, my friend spends the winters down here in Puerto Vallarta, so I thought this was a good time to come down and hang out with him a little bit. And uh, I didn't bring recording equipment because I thought, "Ah, I'll just be a little late next week, as I often am. But, uh, well, partly I feel like it's a good time to keep the ball rolling because for some reason the downloads are going through the roof. Thanks to you probably telling people about the podcast. Uh, For some reason, since September or so, downloads have been going up about 10% per month, probably, something like that. To give you a sense, at the beginning of 2016, the podcast was getting around 130,000 downloads per month, something like that. And uh, last month it got 350, and so far this month it's on track to get over 400,000 downloads in the month of January. So I thought maybe this isn't a good time to interrupt it because there are probably a lot of new listeners, and uh, I want them to understand that I release this damn thing every week, just about every Monday. Sometimes I'm off by a day or two, but uh, you can expect at least four episodes a month. So anyway, I'm going to release this. I'm recording this intro on my phone. I don't know how the audio quality is, but it seems to be okay. And uh, But I'm going to keep this intro pretty brief uh, to save you uh, any annoyance if the quality isn't so great. This episode is with Elena Argento. I recorded this in Vancouver about, oh, I don't know, 10 days ago. Not, not long ago. Um, things are moving fast. I got in touch with Elena because she and Stanley were in contact, and I don't remember. I think we talk about it in the podcast exactly how we ended up in contact with each other, but she's great. She's uh, doing really interesting research with, um, she's done research in India with uh, sex workers, and now she's doing, um, her research is sort of shifted into the use of hallucinogens for clinical um, uh, use for clinical applications, which is uh, an exploding realm right now, largely thanks to other people who've been on the podcast, uh, like Rick Doblin and um, Charles Grobe and Andrew Weil and Wade Davis. And, you know, you've heard it all, the, the various people who for decades now have stood up and said, these sacred substances have incredible therapeutic potential and we won't be shamed into pretending otherwise. So 
Elena is continuing that tradition, and uh, she's going to be amazing. Anyway, after we recorded this, we went out to dinner, and I met her husband and her husband's buddy, Chris and Terrence, and we had a great time. Really cool guys uh, from South Africa. So anyway, if you hear affection in my voice, it's very sincere and authentic. She's a wonderful woman and uh, going to have a great long, wonderful career. So I'm going to end it there and just uh, get right into the conversation. I'm sitting in a very cozy apartment in Vancouver with Elena Argento. Wait, did I pronounce it it's right? It's Elena Argento. Elena. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I, it's the Spanish that's thing. That's funny. So I asked you about your last yeah, name. Yeah, not my first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Elena Argento. Are you Spanish? I'm not. I'm Italian. Ah. But when I'm in Spain or anywhere that speaks Spanish, Elena. I'm Elena. Yeah. I just become Elena. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that that happens. I do that. I say, I'm going to IKEA, and people look at me like I'm nuts. IKEA is what? Do you, how do you say it here? IKEA. IKEA. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't actually go there, but you know, because it it arose while I was in Spain. To me, it's IKEA. I, right. You know, I just it's weird. Like, I think people must think I'm being pretentious. Like, oh, look <laughs> at Chris pronouncing everything in Spanish. Ikea. Yeah, I'm going to Ikea. I'm going to watch television. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just coughed on my mic. Okay, so uh, we met, how did we meet uh, online? Uh, you, you emailed Stanley about something? And yeah, I got looped into this... Uh, psychedelic researchers mailing list. Oh, that's what it was. And Stanley Krippner sent me a little welcoming message. Oh. And then I sort of wrote him back saying, oh, it's nice to hear from you. I've, I've heard you on Chris Ryan's podcast. Oh, okay. And then so he looped me in. And then he looped you in. Yeah, yeah. Stanley's so nice. He's so funny. Every time someone mentions that they know me, he, he like sends me an email like, well, you're famous in Bolivia. I <laughs> <laughs> he's so, he's so like uh, ego uh, nourishing. Yeah, yeah. To the point where it. I mean, I've known Stanley twenty years or more, probably at this point. Um, he was when I was in graduate school. He was my sort of mentor. Right. And at one point, I had to say to him, Stanley, you're totally useless in terms of helping me with my writing because you'll never say anything negative. <laughs> you know, it's just everything's great all the time. Uh, that's not what I need here. That's amazing, though. Everyone needs someone like that around. Yeah, yeah. He, that's he became more like family than than an academic advisor pretty quickly. So anyway, your so your research. So I looked you up when when I saw that email. Like, oh, that's interesting. Thing. She's doing this psychedelic stuff, but then your research is all over the place. You're, kind of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, literally, uh, geographically all over the place. You've it has been in, a little bit, yeah. We're in India, in India, Brazil. Yeah, the India is where I started up with sort of the sex worker research. Right. Um, but most of it's been in Vancouver and India. So let's yeah. talk about that research, and then we'll get to the psychedelics sure. later. Sure. All right, so what you're looking at... Uh, sex workers and what how, how legal changes affect their lives? Yeah, so kind of generally, I'm a researcher at, uh, with the Gender and Sexual Health Initiative, and that's at the BC Center for Excellence in HIV AIDS at St. Paul's Hospital here in Vancouver. Um, and sort of broadly, I'm looking at the sexual and drug use related health risks among sex workers and their clients in Vancouver. Um, and one of the pieces of that for my PhD is looking at criminalization of sex work and how 
new sex work laws are impacting the health of sex workers. And how's that going? Well, I mean, I'm at the beginning of my PhD within the first sort of year and a half. Mm. Um, and I don't know if you know much about the laws in Canada, but we did recently have new legislation pass in 2014 that now is sort of known as the Nordic model, uh, demand criminalization. Right, okay. So what that is, is it's uh, criminalizing the purchasing of sex rather than the selling right. of sex. Right. So targeting clients rather than the sex workers. Right. Which really is doing the same thing. The same risks are involved. It's These criminalized environments are having sort of the same impact. It's all about it's pushing it underground. Pushing it underground, exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. And... I wonder if if it also has sort of a self-selecting effect on the clientele in the sense that people who are afraid of getting caught because they have a lot more to lose are maybe pushed out of the market. Potentially. Which would leave people who are potentially more dangerous. Exactly. So, yeah, there could be things like that happening as well. Hmm. Are you, are you um, seeing any indications of that, or is it too early to It's to really... a little too early. I've started to do some sort of preliminary analyses, and yeah, it's hard. I can't really say too much about that at this point, but the trend is that nothing has changed, nothing has gotten better. Yeah. We may not be seeing things get you know, completely worse this soon, but nothing is getting better. And what's, sure. what's the political motivation for laws like that? Is it just like, hey, why are we punishing women when the men are involved in this so they should be punished as well? To change it towards clients, you mean? Yeah, the Nordic thing. Yeah, you know, I guess they're following sort of the, like Norway and Sweden and coming up with a new model that they think is going to be better accepted or is going to be maybe safer for sex workers or safer for the public. Yeah, but, what, but it's I don't not, understand. It doesn't make sense. Right. I, I, no. And it's confusing to me. I remember reading about that when it was being, what, like three or four years ago maybe in, in the Nordic countries that they introduced this? Yeah, probably a little sooner than that, yeah. It, yeah. It, I, I just remember being confused, like A, because those countries, it seemed to me that their way of thinking is more about harm reduction and... You know, maybe I'm thinking of Holland more than, but Sweden was like the first country that had pornography, and mm -hmm. you know, they're they're generally seen as like people do what they're going to do. Let's just yeah. uh, minimize the the harmful impact, yeah. As opposed to the American model, which is make everything illegal and right. throw them in prison, where because we know they'll be rehabilitated there. Everyone gets better in prison. Corrections, yes. the corrections, yeah. yeah. I was watching uh, just last week. I was binge watching The Night of. Have you seen that? I haven't, but I think I've heard of this. Oh my God, it's good. What it, is that about again? It's just a one season. I think there are ten episodes, or maybe. 12 um, it's just this one season thing uh, John Torturo is in it and uh, oh man I can't remember it doesn't even matter the other actors but there's some very well known actors basically it's about this kid who ends up getting falsely accused of murdering a girl that he's having a one night stand with okay. and the and that happens in the first episode and the rest is about him in prison and Rikers Island and how he deals you have to deal with the prison environment and then the legal things that are going on behind the scenes and how the whole thing is set up not to find out really what happened so much as to you know get a conviction and 
and it just it's a very I would say accurate portrayal of what's really going on in the justice system in the U.S. Yeah, wow. Which has nothing to do with you know rehabilitation or correction yeah. or anything. It's it's heartbreaking, but it's very well done, and uh, and it's got amusing moments if you can look past the right. Oh, I'll check it out. Yeah. Have you seen that documentary, The Thirteenth? No. About the Thirteenth Amendment in the United States, and it's all about the prison system oh. and sort of how it's become modern day slavery, essentially. No. That's a good one to check out as well. I, I think I heard about that. Yeah. Is, is the Thirteenth Amendment that, that's the to abolish uh, abolishing slavery. slavery, which also gave rise to corporate personhood? Did Do you it? know that story? Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't it's think. crazy. Yeah, because. What it did was, it, I can't remember the specifics, but I read about this recently. The, um, it created a legal structure whereby lawyers could then petition for the rights of personhood because property had now been given, slaves, had now been given legal rights. Mm -hmm. So then they took it backwards and they said, well then, property of other sorts should also have access to legal rights, oh, not only human property. Okay. So we can form this corporation that is holding property, and now and it can have yes. a legal okay. standing in court, which gave rise to this whole corporate corporate you know structure. And then they just expanded it to have now that they have religious rights and right. you know freedom of speech and like what 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 are you talking about? They're not alive. That's not yeah. a human. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Anyway, yeah. see, this is what happens. We just veer, <laughs> veer off we into. The, so, how did you get? Like, what, what motivated you to study sex work and and uh, the, the laws around that? Yeah. So, um, I had an opportunity when I was doing my master's degree at SFU. Um, to do my practicum component Simon in Simon Fraser, Simon not Fraser, San Francisco. Simon Fraser University, right. yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I had an opportunity to do my practicum in South India with a community-based uh, sex worker organization there. Wow, in is this Mysore. In, in Mysore. Is that in Kerala or it's Tamil Nadu? It's in uh, Karnataka. Karnataka. Yes. Which coast is that? So, let's see. It's on the west coast. Um, uh, just north of Kerala, I guess. Uh, so yeah. around Cochin? Um, I think it might be a bit more north than that, even. Oh, uh, yeah, I was, I it's, was it's quite south, actually. Uh, it's very close to Bangalore. Uh, um, yeah, Goa is way higher. Right. Yeah. Did you get up to Goa? I did get up to Goa, yeah. Did you take ecstasy um, and you know dance what? on the beach? <laughs> <laughs> I did not take ecstasy and dance on the beach there. But um, I was there during monsoon, so it oh, was just horrific yeah. weather. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't beach weather at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want to. I, I, there, actually, there's a really good book. Uh, Steve McCurry is a photographer for National Geographic, and he did a book on India in the monsoon, which is a really difficult photographic assignment because yeah. your lenses are getting all, you know, messed up. Yeah. Um, but he, it's a beautiful beautiful collection of images which sort of gave me for a moment the temptation to go to India in the monsoon but it passed yeah <laughs> unlike the monsoon it passed very quickly yeah. yeah I don't know if I'd recommend it I mean it's good in one way because there's not as many tourists around yeah but 
It's a little rough. Yeah. 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 And India's rough anyway. India's already rough. Yeah. You don't need to make things more complicated in India. Is that generally. the only time you've been there? For that was the only time, but I did spend about four months there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's wild. Yeah. Did anyone think you were Indian? No. There were some of the sex workers there were kind of mentioning that I look a little bit like their cousin or something, like some yeah. of the you know, more white-looking yeah. Indian women. But yeah. Yeah, I didn't get mistaken. In fact, people were staring at me like, what's this white person doing here? <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. Yeah, so who are the sex workers that you were dealing with So there? they were um, street-based sex workers in Mysore, um, and they were part of an organization that is under a bigger umbrella funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Mm. Um, so part of this uh, national AIDS initiative for India. Um, called Ashodea is the name of them, which I think means Dawn of Hope. Mm. Um, yeah, so there's, I think, about 1,400 uh, sex workers that are part of that organization down in Mysore. And how did they become part of the organization? So, yeah, they were sort of recruited through um, sort of that initiative that was started up. Um, they did community mapping techniques. Mm. Um, this happened all before I got there, so I don't know like all the details of it. But um, yeah, by the time I was there, it was a, quite an empowered group of you know women, men, transgendered. Oh, really? Um, yeah, really so, amazing group. So, what what's the the prostitution situation in India? Is it legal or not legal? Not legal. Or? Highly frowned upon. Highly stigmatized. Um, mm. A lot of violence. So my my uh, master's project was to look at how this organization has helped to confront structural violence and physical violence in their lives. Um, and Explain what you mean by structural. By structural vi violence, I mean um, sort of the larger structural components of the society, such as laws, stigma, policing, that type of thing, and how that impacts um, people's health. Mm. Yeah. I. I I was just today, I was talking with a friend of mine who had a experience with a Moroccan guy last mm -hmm. night. And she was telling me how scary it was. And this mm. guy, she had to like kick him out of her car and it was this situation. <laughs> and we were talking about, um, you know, I've been to Morocco a few times and I'm not a fan of Moroccan culture in general because there's this sort of uh, innate aggressiveness and there's fighting about everything yeah. and there's an extreme disdain for women yeah. uh, by men. So when you, you're talking about structural violence and the different aspects of it that you mentioned, I often think that culture itself becomes or at least fuels structural violence. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and the way men are taught to think of women. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, how do you go to a country as an outsider and say, hey, you guys are doing this all wrong? Yeah, it's like one of the worst things you can do, really. Yeah, but it's sort of like everything else is missing the fundamental point. You know what I mean? Because yeah. that, everything you do, you're in India, and I'm, mm. you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but I imagine if you're trying to talk to a police officer or something, you know, mm. you're a woman. Yeah. What do you know? Yeah. You know? And that's even before you're a foreigner, what do you know? Mm -hmm. You're a woman. There's this dismissal of women yeah. that's, that is also, I mean, it's this, it's like, um, 
I don't know, it's like a uh, motor, right, that, that, yeah. that has both sides spinning because there's a dismissal of women, and then at the same time there's this incredible frustrated hunger for women. Yeah. You know, and for touch and, and intimacy and all. I mean, when I was, tra I've traveled in India a lot, and the, the things that women talk about, like guys will just like rub up on them on the bus and stuff. Yeah. There's this like crazed animal need to be near women. Yeah. And they know they can't be near the Indian women because, you know, within the culture, then, but the foreign women are like fair game. It's crazy. Yeah, I almost got the sense that they had this perspective of women that, uh, you know, if you're from the States, or I guess they assume you're from America yeah. always, um, that you're basically a slut. Yeah, no, all That's women are think. sluts, except all, for you're Indian all sluts. women. Yeah. 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 You're not wearing a sari, you're not, in, you're not an Indian woman, you're right. a slut. Well, and they've heard that, you know, Western women have sex without being married. Yeah. And to them, so that's, to them like, that's very slutty. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I did have an experience where it was actually, it was raining, and I was wearing a big raincoat with my hood up, and it sort of like went down to my knees. You can't even tell I'm female, actually, in that coat. But this guy uh, rode by on his little motorbike in India and just like on the way by, like grabbed me, like tried to grope me and kept kind of taunted me, like kept, kept going back and forth on his bike. And I was a little scared. Yeah. Yeah. Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. It's like Donald Trump on a motorbike. <laughs> it's Donald Trump. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, 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 I vow not to mention Donald Trump, but it's going to be a long hard, four though. years. Yeah. How are you not going to mention Donald Trump? I mean, every time you talk about sexual abuse and tiny hands and, you know. Didn't he actually say, I grabbed them by the, by the pussy? pussy? Like, that actually came out of his mouth. He did, yeah. Hmm. Recorded. Yeah. That's going to be the president of the United States, and that came out of his mouth yeah. during the election. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. Um, what are we talking about? Oh, you had the opportunity yeah. to do this thing in your master's program. Mm -hmm. So now, what attracted you more to that? The fact that you could go live in India for four months or the yeah. fact that you'd be working with, you know... I guess it was a little bit of both. I thought it was very exotic, obviously India, but then also the sex worker part. I was kind of interested in it. I had never worked, you know, in that area before. Mm. Um, I'd done a little bit around HIV. Um, did they speak English, the women you were working with? They did. Some of them did. Most of them did not. Oh. So there was a translator. Oh. And what was your job? Were you just collecting data? Yeah, you... so I was doing qualitative interviews. Uh -huh. So um, I developed some questionnaires and uh, conducted interviews with sex workers themselves, uh, also their partners, their boyfriends, uh, some of the lodge owners in the area, and also the police officers as well. And now, given the fact that it's illegal, how hard was it to get that access? Well, because of that organization, there was sort of some structure there. Yeah. So, um, and uh, my supervisor at SFU had some contacts in India and had been working with them there. Right. Um, and so I worked sort of closely with uh, this woman that was running it, a, a physician. Um, so, you know, a big part of it was to go there every day and have lunch with the women and uh -huh. men and just build a rapport. That right. was a huge part of it. So right. spending every day there and 
and so just you're, hanging out. So you're in that part of town, which I, I guess is in a great part of town. Well, actually, I was staying in a quite a nice part of town. Um, it, the house was funded by the organization, so right. it was in this teak wood forest. Oh, nice. It was this beautiful guest house. Um, and I had like a live-in caregiver woman, Nalini Ma was her name. She was amazing. Um, you know, home-cooked meals mm. and big, like, big windows and doors, marble floors, uh, large gardens surrounding the house. And so it was a little bit outside of Mysore. Right. And it was lovely. Yeah. And then a couple what, of dogs. you took a, a tuk-tuk to the... And then you take, we had a driver oh, as well. Driver. We have our own driver. Like, you have everything, right? right? You get served, like, tea and biscuits in bed. Yeah. And you've got a driver. <laughs> you've got a cook. <laughs> I opened the fridge and Nalinima would always stop me like, what are you looking for, Elena? Yeah. Like, I'm not even allowed to open the fridge and yeah. get something for myself. Yeah. So uh, that's where I was staying. But then I did go in every day and yeah. And, uh, yeah. Huh. And were you, uh, did you have bodyguards? Were you protected? I didn't think that was necessary, but I was with uh, three other students as well. So yeah. there were four of us together. Uh, um, it kind of a little group of us. Right. But uh, yeah, I don't think we needed. I don't. It wasn't like that. Right. Yeah. And what? So how's it structured? The lodge owners are they like pimps? Is that their role? In a way, some of the boyfriends are also more like pimps, um, but the lodge owners are sort of running the places where the women take their clients and right. they take money for that, and uh, the women end up with very little in the end, essentially. Right. Yeah. So what, like what percentage, do the women have the right to set prices or is that controlled uh, by someone else? I think it's mostly controlled by their boyfriends or pimps or the lodge owners. Right. Um, and is it a caste yeah. thing? Are these all the, what are they called, the untouchables? I know it's the slang name, but yeah. there's another word. I can't remember. Um, or, or I mean, obviously they're not Brahmins or the something. The Brahmins are sort of the upper class. Right. Um, it is still a caste system there, as yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but is this something like your mother was a prostitute, so you're going to be a prostitute? Or is it more like you got pregnant when you were young, unmarried, and now there's nothing else for you? Yeah, I think it might be sort of survival sex work based. Yeah. So yeah. poverty driving right. that. Right. Um, you know, these women have, some of them have children, and they're trying to send them to school, and yeah. they've got to make some money. It's a little different with the men, actually. The men, I found, were had more education. Um, some of them were married and had children. Really? Yeah. And they're serving male clients, yep. mainly? Male yeah, male clients, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, very complex. Yeah. yeah. And did you, I mean, did you get, how old were you when you went? Um, when was that? That was 2008, 2008. So. How many years ago was that now? <laughs> Seven, eight years ago. Eight years ago, yeah. So I was like 26. So you were, well, the reason I ask is you were very young. It's I your first young. trip yeah. to India. Mm -hmm. Did that, how did that affect you psychologically? Four months. Oh, man, I think that really changed me. Because you're coming from, I mean, I don't know anything about your personal background, yeah. but you're coming from a very comfortable, safe, mm -hmm. affluent part of the world. I mean, maybe one of the most comfortable, safe, yeah. affluent parts of the world. Yeah. And you're going to the other end of the spectrum. Completely. yeah. So what did you, how did it change you? 
Yeah, you know, I'd had some experience traveling and, you know, seeing the developing world and seeing people live in, in more challenging situations, but nothing like India. India completely opened my eyes. Um, you know, it was really humbling and India is just one of those places that you will love it and you will hate it at the same time. And through that hate, you kind of overcome things about yourself, if that mm, makes sense. It does. Um, you learn patience. I would say if there was one thing that I really learned from India, it is how to be patient. Mm. Um, yeah, it was uh, yeah a very big experience for me, that's for sure. I think, the f I don't know if it's still like this for people, but I remember the first time I went to India, I was sitting next to this Israeli guy on the plane and uh, we, he had been to India a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, like, uh, oh, so it's your first time? I said, yeah, but I've been reading. And, 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 and he's like, yeah, man, you, you think you prepared? You're not prepared. Nothing, you cannot prepare. So just get there and, like, you know, get through figure the first out. few days <laughs> and you figure it out. But, I mean, India was, like, as far as you could get from Western culture without leaving the planet you know, mm -hmm. in those days. I think now it's different with the internet. Everyone's got their phone and their mom's texting yeah. them. And you know, it's like, you're, you're not really disconnected. But I mean, when I was there, the first time I had this little shortwave radio oh, yeah? that I would listen to at night and pick up the BBC, you know, and that was <laughs> oh, like, goodness. you know, as close as I could get to home, which was like cricket scores from the BBC. Yeah. But it was crazy. There was one car in the whole country. It was all the same car. Wow. There was no Coke, no McDonald's, no Kentucky Fried Chicken, none of that shit. It was because it was aligned with the Soviet Union. So it was all right. like anti-Western consumerist. Right. You know, it's different now, but it's still totally alien and bizarre. Yeah. But I mean, so I ask you what, what changed in you and what did you, but you talked about India. Because mm -hmm. India, just going to India is really bizarre. Mm -hmm. But you went to this very, very special world mm -hmm. within India. Exactly. I think it was a very unique experience. It wasn't just, you know, the regular tourist experience that you have when you go to India. Because yeah. I was sort of, I was part of this community there. Yeah. That was sort of my life there for a while. Yeah. And I didn't really have time to explore the tourists. I did that afterwards. I spent a month... Uh, my That's boyfriend at the go, time huh? came and met me, and yeah. we did a whole, you know, thing. Went to Mumbai, did right. the whole trip, um, Carolyn backwaters, and all that stuff. Right. But for the most part, for three of the months, I was, yeah, I was in Mysore, living in this community. And Mysore is a very traditional part of India. Um, yeah, it was a very unique experience, and I actually felt afterwards when I became a tourist. It almost felt a bit empty. I felt like, what am I doing here, hmm. actually? I'm just here to enjoy what India has to offer. Like, I felt a little disoriented and hmm. kind of wondering what my purpose was to be traveling through a country like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I eventually ended up loving it, and, you know, you just slip right into that role again. Right. But it took some time. Yeah. Yeah, I can remember having dinner uh, with Andrew Weil. Do you know who he is? I know. I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah. So I was corresponding with him, and, and we met for dinner in San Francisco. We're still friends now. This was like, God, this was in the 88 or something. I don't know what it was. Yeah. But anyways, the first time I had met him, and I was kind of nervous to meet him and all this. And... Uh, 
and he said to me, so, you know, I mentioned that I'd been traveling in Asia, and he said, so what were you doing there? And I was like, I said, well, you know, just sort of traveling and seeing things. Yeah. I remember him looking at me like, really, that's it? Like, <laughs> yeah. you're just traveling? And I was like, he has a point, you yeah. know? Like, I mean, there's nothing I wrong with that. could have done something. You do learn that way about yeah. yourself and the world, and, right. you know, it's very enriching. And I was reading books and, you know, yeah. whatever, and, you know, but I wasn't, it's true, I wasn't researching anything. Yeah. I wasn't helping anyone. I wasn't building a school. I, you know, I was yeah. just sort of backpacking around, checking it out, and, you know, taking naps. <laughs> yeah, but that's important, too. Oh, it is. It's so important. <laughs> so important. Um, okay, so that was four months in India. Yeah. Then you came back. You finished your master's yes. at Simon yeah. Fraser. You know how I know Simon Fraser? Uh, is that how you say it? Yeah. Fraser or Fraser? Fraser. Um, Fraser. Bruce, what's his name? Bruce Mc. Mc Mick something. Bruce Mick something who did the Rat Park experiments. Ooh. You know what I'm talking about? Bruce McConnell, Bruce Mick something. Uh, do you know about Rat Park? Uh, this is an addiction thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I do. So interesting and, and, and so underappreciated. I've told the story before, but I'm going to tell it again because everyone should know about yeah, this guy, even do. though I can't remember his name. Uh, but just Google Rat Park. Um, he was in the, I guess it was the early 80s, there were all these commercials on TV um, showing these rats that would hit a lever for coke or heroin or whatever, uh, and they would just keep dosing themselves till they starved to death mm -hmm. because they wouldn't even take time off to go and eat, you know? Cocaine is better than food. Right. So, and the whole point was like, you've got these addiction, addictive centers in your brain and once you get hooked, you, you'll ignore everything and you'll just do this until you die, right? So there are all these commercials based on that and he was looking at them thinking, I don't know, that doesn't, he's an experimental psychologist and thinking, that doesn't really comport with what I've seen with rat behavior and so on. And so he went and he looked at the experiments underlying this campaign and he saw that all the rats do, involved in these experiments were isolated mm -hmm. in individual cages. And that's not how rats are, they're social animals. So he built what he called Rat Park, which was a big enclosure with lots of different rats of different ages and toys and tunnels and other stuff to do that replicated a rat's uh, natural life. And then he ran the experiments and the rats generally would try the drug and then abandon it yeah. and go back to their normal life. Yeah. Now, nobody's heard about him. Why has no one heard about this? Because it totally undermines this bullshit medical theory of yeah, addiction right yeah that once you get hooked you're done forever and it's all about the substance it's not about the substance it's about the meaninglessness of your mm -hmm. life it's like doing experimental studies on prisoners in solitary confinement and then extrapolating that to humans in general right. it's nonsense yeah it doesn't make sense <sighs> yeah so anyway. when you've got the sort of community bruce connection. alexander bruce, bruce alexander, alexander. mick nothing bruce alexander <laughs> yes so he was at simon fraser oh was he there yeah, okay yeah. i didn't know that yeah yeah I, I send him emails every time i come to vancouver i send him an email trying to get him to be on the podcast but he hasn't answered me yet so oh, really maybe hmm. he, maybe i've got the wrong email address <laughs> bruce if you're out there get in touch um, yeah, so you uh, so you came back and then what? You went straight into a PhD program? Uh, no, I did not do that. Um, I finished the master's. What did I do? I took a little bit of time off. Um, got a job. 
but sex uh, worker as a sex worker. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, I worked for I worked actually for SFU, and I worked for something called the Center for Mental Health and Addictions, uh, called Karma is the acronym. And so I was there for a while, and uh, and then I also that's when I met Kate Shannon, who's now my supervisor with the Gender and Sexual Health Initiative, uh-huh. um, and got back into more of the sex worker stuff again right. with her. Huh. So I took a slight departure, more around you know psychoactive drug use and drug policy, and then back into the sex work right. area, which is now coming around again to yeah. drugs. The sex, drugs, yeah. sex, drugs. That's right. <laughs> basically what happened. Right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's kind of my life too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just missing the rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. The rock and roll's everywhere. Rock and roll is sex. Okay. Do you know the the phrase to rock and roll originally meant to it's, fuck? Okay, yeah. That's why songs like "We're Gonna Rock Around the Clock Tonight" it means we're gonna have sex all night. Right. And among black people in the South, they knew that phrase meant to fuck right yeah so when they heard the white djs you know we got some rock and roll coming where you know we're gonna be rocking all night like it must have sounded so ridiculous (laughs) yeah (laughs) at least white people don't even know what they're saying yeah um so wait a minute i I feel like we've left something out here so you're you're because this experience in india Mm -hmm. Like you must have had moments there that were just mind blowing. Absolutely, you must have met people. So many, so many things. I mean, see, when I said (laughs) how did it change you or how did it affect you or whatever, and and you talked about India and how India, you learn patience and you know all that stuff and the frustrations of India. But what about these women that you were working with? I mean, some of them must have been girls. Um, Most of them were. They were adults. They. I wasn't in contact with a lot of the younger. Mm. They were actually harder to reach. So mm. definitely there are some underage sex workers, yeah. but we didn't really come into contact with them very often. And they're not using condoms, right? They were not yeah. for the most part. That's the thing. They didn't really have a choice. Yeah. You know? um, and were the AIDS rates quite Quite high? high. Yeah, quite high. It was still, even though that organization was able to bring down the HIV incidents quite a lot. There, mm. I think at the time that I was there, it was still one in four people were HIV positive. Of the sex workers? Of the sex workers. Right. Of the sex workers. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we even met someone that ended up passing away while we were there, which is quite hard. Yeah. Um, and I did meet some, actually, I'm remembering now, a 16-year-old girl she was, I think she had some mental health issues as well. She was, we had to go visit her in this institution and she was, yeah, she was a wreck, but she was also a sex worker and yeah, yeah there was, and just the stories that you'd hear, um, of, you know, rape and murder and, uh, you know, stones being shoved in their mouths and, you know, their vaginas had been burned and like just like horrific things. I don't even really want to get into it. Yeah. But really violent, really horrific stories. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bring yeah. you down. No, but it's... I felt like, you know, we can't just talk about sex workers in India without acknowledging that it's pretty hellish. Yeah. It's not like Amsterdam, you know, where they're getting medical exams and they've got a union no. or something. It's yeah. it's essentially slavery. Yeah. And the nice thing about this organization is that they had all of a sudden this very safe space to come to and have showers and there's a doctor there and 
they get sexual health and mm. checkups and you know everything in this place and feel like they have a family and that was a huge part of why it was so successful and why they were so empowered and were able to sort of alter these dynamics in their society. So what, what dynamics are, there alter, are they altering? So they like, built rapport with the police officers. Uh, um, you know, rather than the police raiding the lodges, they would know, oh, this is part of Ashadea, so we're going to kind of leave them alone. Or it, they were able to sort of build partnerships. Mm. Um, yeah. So they're bringing... And openly protesting on the streets. Uh -huh. And we did a march with them one day. And right. So, you know, there was definitely some progress being made. And... That was really inspiring to see. Yeah. And this whole thing was also modeled after the Sanagachi uh, up in Kolkata. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. There was a documentary film made on that. It's the Red Light District oh. in uh, Kolkata. Can't remember what that what that film's called. But basically, the filmmaker gave children cameras and got them to go around. And I, have you seen that? I saw that. Yeah. I don't remember what it's called either, but yeah, I do yeah. remember that. Anyway, so the yeah. Sonagachi is sort of this best practice model acknowledged by the World Health Organization for um, community organization of sex workers to sort of become empowered. Yeah. And, so what's your feeling about, and if you're free to talk about this as a, like, I mean, you're a researcher, I guess you're free to talk about anything. Um, but. What do you feel is the best way to approach prostitution, having seen it from these angles? Yeah, well, it's a job. You know, I think we need to take an occupational hazards framework approach, harm reduction approach. Mm. And, uh, you know, they have a job and they deserve to do their job in a safe environment and without stigma, without, you know, mm. being subjected to violence. and Right. Um, so you think so it should I think be it should legalized? Be, I think it should be decriminalized completely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really understand how anyone can legitimately argue otherwise. It, it does, yeah. No. But, I, I mean, I think there are these unexamined premises. You know, we're talking about India and Morocco and, like, how women yeah. are looked down on. But, you know, in the United States right now, they're arguing about defunding Planned Parenthood. Yeah, right. And would, like it's the same thing, basically. I, I feel like the premise underlying that is that a woman isn't an autonomous being. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we have the right to tell her what to do exactly. with her body. Yeah. And it's like, I don't understand how anyone can actually argue from that position. Yeah, I think they argue it from the point of if we criminalize it, we can reduce it. I think that's, it's a screwed up framework, but I think that's what they're trying to do. But that right. has never been proven. When right. you criminalize it, you're not getting rid of prostitution. You're right. not getting rid of sex work. You're not getting rid of drugs. You're never going to get rid of sex rid work. Of masturbation. You're, you're never going to get rid, rid of, of any of these things. Yeah. Right. You, know? you just, so. yeah. Yeah, right. It's, it's, a strange, uh, it's a strange premise to work from. But also, I mean, you know, like uh, in Ireland, condoms were illegal for, you know, until very recently, actually, until the 90s, I think. Uh, all forms of contraception were illegal. Were illegal? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. You know, the, the whole, well, Catholicism still mm -hmm. holds that contraception is a sin, right? Yeah. Which is, what is that doing? It's saying all sex is for reproduction. Uh, well, 
because also, you know, oral, anal, and hand jobs, everything else is, is a sin as well. So it's yeah. got to be vaginal. It's got to be only for reproduction. Like, what the fuck? No, I don't know. <laughs> Which is funny because that's how most mammals treat sex. But we don't. You know, we're the one exception to that. So it's as if the Catholic Church and, and all these legal things are saying we should be fucking like animals. Right. Turn us into animals, pretty much. Gonna have to if I can ever get the Pope on this podcast, I'm gonna <laughs> that's, I'm gonna erase that. That would be great. Could, <laughs> would that be great? You gotta erase that though. <laughs> Me and the I gotta what? Erase that. Erase it. What? Well, I mean, maybe cut it out. On, on your behalf? Well, no, just so you know, you don't want to upset him. Oh, oh. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were telling me edit that out if you're a Catholic or something. I don't know. Well, I was born Catholic. Yeah. Were you? Grew up in a Catholic family, but yeah. Oh. Not really though. Yeah, my parents were Catholic until they until I was born, essentially. Then I guess I'm the Antichrist, the Antichrist. <laughs> the Antichrist. Yeah. Um, okay, so then where did the drugs come into uh, all this? Uh, and you know, you're yeah. not, I mean, people can't see you, but the woman sitting across the table from me doesn't strike me as a hippie. Okay. Are you a hippie? Uh, mm, I don't think so. You know, no dreadlocks. No dreadlocks. Uh, tattoos? Do you have tattoos? Mm -hmm. oh, do you? Yep. Okay, well, they're not visible. No neck tattoos. <laughs> no facial piercings. <laughs> no. So what, where does the drugs come um, into this? Well, for work, you know, I, so after my master's, I ended up working with that organization that I told you about, Karma, mm -hmm. where that was all about drug policy. All right. Um, and where I am now, I am now looking at something that I've become very passionate about and in increasingly interested in is the therapeutic potential of psychedelic drugs right. to help people heal um, mental health and addiction issues. Mm -hmm. And how did you how did you get and into I guess, this? I mean, I guess there's sort of two parts of the story because you know, as a teenager, I came across all sorts of drugs, including psychedelics. But uh, my experience then with these things is very different from how I experience them now as an adult. So, in terms of sort of psychedelic research and the therapeutic potential of psychedelics, I would say it's stemming from. Uh, my experience in South Africa, actually. Mm. Yeah. Which was... Let's talk about let's South talk Africa. Let's talk about South Africa. We're going around the world. Yeah. Um, my partner's from there. Mm. So I spent a year there in 2013. Where? What part? So mostly in Cape Town. Ten months in Cape Town. Great city. Which is amazing. Wow, I really like Cape Town. Um, but initially, I mean, we didn't know how long we were going to stay. We kind of just got rid of all our things and decided to sort of semi-quit our jobs and uh -huh. go and live met, there for a while. you met up here? We met here, uh -huh. yeah. Um, and it was initially just going to be for his sister's weddings. So we were going to go for three weeks. And then we said, let's stay for, you know, three months or so and see hmm. what happens. And we ended up staying a year oh, without wow. any plan. And... Yeah, his parents have a farm there, so mm. we spent some time on the farm and kind of just, you know, checked out a society for a little while, which was really nice. Yeah. I got a chance to kind of do some writing and, you know, live on a farm in the yeah. middle of nowhere. Yeah. Which is great. I loved it. What What's on the farm? Uh, crops, animals, all sorts of animals. Serious farm. Yeah, it's a big farm. Yeah. 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 Wow. yeah. Cool. So, so what happened down there with the drugs? Um, so, yeah, when I was down in South Africa, I was doing a lot of sort of yoga and meeting people in Cape Town and that sort of 
uh, area, and I came across ayahuasca there. Oh. Yeah. So I met uh, one of my yoga teachers, uh, started talking about it and introduced me to it and uh, talked about it as this plant teacher. And I'd kind of heard about it before. I didn't know too much about ayahuasca, but um, a little bit. And uh, yeah, I, I came home and I told my partner, I was like, let's try this. Let's try ayahuasca. And he was completely on board. And yeah, it completely uh, was one of the most profound experiences of my life, I would mm. say. In what respect? Um, how do I even describe it? It's one of those things that's really hard to describe unless yeah. you've tried it yourself. But uh, just a really, uh, you know, altering your consciousness in a way that makes you understand things about yourself and about who you are and what this is and in a whole new way. Hmm. Um, Unlike other hallucinogens? I don't know, unlike other hallucinogens, I think similarly, but it's sort of like the powerhouse version mm. of it. Yeah. And another thing that I think is good about it is that generally it's used with, in the context of ritual. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I don't go, think I had ever taken a drug in a way like that, huh? where it's, you know, with this shaman and right. with a small group of people and Did you alter a lot your of diet prep, for a week before? Yeah. The yeah. whole dieta thing. Right. Um, and setting an intention right. is really important. So going into this with a lot of respect and a lot of um, preparation, which is not usually how you take drugs when you're 15 right. and you're at a party. Or 30 and you're or at a party. Or 30 and you're at a party, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a, a really incredible experience and I learned a lot about myself and about my life and who I am and who I want to be. and. Uh, it's very healing. I did, um, I did ayahuasca with Stanley, actually. Oh, you did? Yeah, which was uh, interesting in Brazil in, under the auspices of uh, one of the churches, the Unio de Vegetal, you yep. know, that has the governmental permission to use it uh, in their ceremonies. That, yeah, that was interesting. I had a very strange experience with it. Um, and I've had this, I had the same sort of experience with peyote and um, it's like, I mean, I, I won't tell the whole story now, it's, it's very involved, but uh, when I was under the influence of the drug, I, I didn't really feel that much, hmm. but some really weird shit happened before I took the drug. So on, on our way to the, the church, well, no, it's hard to explain. Okay, so I saw this woman. On the way to the church, I saw this woman uh, walking along the road and was like, wow, she's beautiful. Look at that woman. And she was very unusual because she was, this is in the like, dirt road in rural Brazil, just outside of Porto Alegre, right? Like very, like chickens and you know little kids with no pants and you know huts kind of rural third world kind of scene mm -hmm. and suddenly we're bouncing around this this dirt road going to this place where they're going to have the ceremony and i see this woman she's walking toward the car and we're going in one direction she's walking the other and she's wearing a sari and has a bindi on her forehead. Like, what's she doing in Brazil, you know, in this little dirt road? So I thought, well, she must be part of this organization. And she was really beautiful. I was like, wow, check yeah. her out. And uh, 
Stanley was talking with the other two guys in the car in, in Portuguese. And uh, then we drove up another hundred meters or so and pulled off. And as we're getting out of the car, I said to Stanley, hey, did you see that woman on the road? And he said, no. I said, oh, beautiful woman in a sari. And he said, oh, wow, interesting. So then we went in and they showed us where they grew the, the vine and the bush, you know, where they combine yeah. the stuff to make the, the ayahuasca. And then I think we had like a light little meal, little salad or something. And we met all these people. And Stanley's a big VIP in Brazil. You know, everyone knows who Stanley is. And then we went into the room where the ceremony was going to happen. And there was a big table in the front for, you know, us and some other guests. And then the regular, the people who were there all the time, there were rows of sort of folding chairs. And she was sitting in the front row. So as we walked down, I saw her. I said, oh, Stanley, that's that woman I, I mentioned. And he said, oh, yeah, she's beautiful. So we sat down and we had this, um, we, we drank the, the ayahuasca, the tea, they call it. And then there's just like two hours where you just sit and close your eyes and just have your experience. So we had this experience. Everyone's got their eyes closed. And I was going through a difficult well, I was splitting up with a woman I'd been with for six years, and so it was a sort of grieving kind of time in my life. And so with the ayahuasca, when I was feeling particularly sad and feeling like I was getting too deep into the sadness, I would open my eyes and look at this woman, and her eyes were closed, so I wasn't intruding on her you know, space or anything. But I just sort of look at her and glance at her and, and she would remind me like there will be other women in the future. There will be love. There will be, you know, just get through this. It's going to be all right. And, you know, there's there's it's going to be fine. Just give me some perspective, you know, not that I didn't have any intention of meeting her. Or I, you know, we didn't even I didn't speak Portuguese. So it was there was no like I was going to, you know, nothing about her. Yeah. She was symbolic, you know. But anyway. So at the end of this period, then everyone opens their eyes and they talk to the, the, the mestre, the sort of leader or the guide or whatever. Yeah. And they'll talk about visions they had and, you know, it's sort of a group therapy kind of thing a little bit. And then uh, at the end of all that, so I never puked the whole time, right? And uh, but then I started feeling at the end of it all, like I might need to puke. And everyone else was going out and puking and coming back. And, and so at the end, we all stand up and he says, um, uh, I'm like, I got to go puke. I got it, but I don't want to interrupt anyone. And then we all stand up and I'm about to go. And he says, oh, Christopher, have you met Hasila? And Hasila was this woman, and she comes over and says, Hi, how are you? And speaks English perfectly. And I was just like, Ah, and I just ran out <laughs> and puked in the back. Oh, no. And then I came back and I said, I'm sorry, you know, uh, the gods have a sense of humor because ever since I saw you out in the, the road when we were coming in, I, I thought how, you know, lovely you are and I'd love to meet you. But, uh, you know, anyway, so then she gave me her number. And we were going to be in Puerto Alegre a couple more days, so I called her and we ended up hanging out and she introduced me to her friends and Brazilian music and, you know, really nice. And we actually had a very uh, nice connection. We, I remember we were at her house. Uh, she lived with her father, but her father was out of town. So we're at her house and we're lying on her bed and she's showing me all these pictures. She was, her parents were a sannyasin. You know, there's the center in Indian Pune, 
Okay. Uh, they, the Osho was the leader of this movement. They had a center in Oregon and Hawaii okay. and India and Brazil. So she grew up like internationally, but she'd had really bad, like someone gave her acid when she was 12 and mm. raped her. And oh, it was just no. like this horrible shit that had happened mm-hmm. to her, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we're lying there on her bed looking at pictures and she looked at me and she said, actually, I just realized this is the first time I've ever been alone with a man and not been afraid. I thought, right. oh man, this is be- this is beautiful, you know. Yeah. We never had sex, or it wasn't that. It was just yeah. like, you know, when I saw how she was, it was like that's not going to happen. But she's yeah. great, and we had this really nice friendship. Anyway, I end up telling the whole story anyway. So <laughs> we, uh, the last night, I went out to have a, a tea with her and say goodbye and I said to her something like you know this has been so great and you know like since when I saw you 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 look so out of place and you know there you were in this weird jungle and and uh, you know with your bindi and your sari and like and I knew you were something really special oh and she was carrying a bowl like a, a shallow soup bowl <laughs> and trying not to spill it you yeah. know and I thought this is such a weird image it stuck in my head yeah and she was looking at me funny and she said you know I didn't want to say anything the first time you mentioned that but now that I know you I think you'll be okay with this I was never in the road <laughs> wow what yeah she said I don't know anyone there I was playing with the children behind the, the house, I, I was never out on that road. Wow. That is very bizarre. Yeah. What do you think that was? Well, I went back to the, the hotel yeah. where Stanley was, and you know, Stanley is this wor- probably the world's most recognized researcher into paranormal phenomena, mm-hmm. right? So I thought, this is a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I went back and I walked into the room and Stanley said, oh, how was that? And you must be sad. And I said, Stanley, I don't want to say anything. Just sit down. This is for science. Sit down and write what I told you about her from the first thing I told you until the last. Just write a sequence Mm -hmm. and then we'll talk. And he said, "Okay." And he sat down and he wrote. You know, that I mentioned that I'd, when we were getting out of the car, I'd seen her in the road, and then we walked into the room, that's her. Wow. Yeah, so Stanley said it was a precognitive apparition, hmm. which is, I guess, where you see something before it happens, yeah. or you see someone before they appear. And so that, you know, when people ask me, what was your ayahuasca experience like? Yeah. It's very hard for me to explain because, you know, it's always hard to explain, but it, yeah. it, the experience itself didn't feel very strong to me yeah. compared to acid I've taken or mushrooms. Yeah. It was like, mm, it's a hallucinogen, but I felt like like an airplane that never quite gets off the yeah. runway. And you that's know? not that unusual, actually. People have... I've heard that before. Well, it turns out, I talked to someone later, and they said they forgot to mix the ayahuasca, oh. so the, and they gave us the first cups that were off the top, oh. and it settles to oh. the bottom. So maybe, maybe it was just very weak. But hmm. I took a second cup later, so I don't know. Yeah. Um, but 
so it's weird because it's like, well, the the drug experience wasn't that strong, right. but it's it's an ex the whole experience is one of the most bizarre yeah. I've ever had. Yeah. You know, so I don't know what to say about yeah. it. It kind of spoke to you in a different way. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. The girl next to me in my that ayahuasca circle that I was in. She was drinking the same brew, and I think she even went up for a second cup, maybe even a third, and she felt pretty much nothing. Mm. So, and you know, I felt very much something. Yeah. So it, it's dependent it's on the person, very... and everyone has a completely different experience. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and that's, that's the beauty of it. And, and that, I think, is very different from other hallucinogens. Like, yes. I've never been with 10 people who all took acid and two of them were like, I don't feel anything. <laughs> no. I have met someone uh, who recently who told me that he used to take acid. He's in his 70s now. He used to take acid back in the day. And he said that he never used to feel much. Like, he would be with his friends and they would all be getting, you know, really high on acid. And he said he just felt kind of energized. Hmm. And that's it. He never had any hallucinogens. He never really felt like he was on acid. Uh. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, well, anything you're interpreting the experience, mm -hmm. you know, we can... Because I, I have always been the go-to, like the, the, the go-to guy when I was tripping with friends and, like, the phone rings or someone knocks at the door. It's like, Chris, can you deal with that? You know, because, like, I can turn it off. Oh, yeah, okay. Or at least pretend, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> And I can't de-dilate de my pupils. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I can sort of, like, pull off normalcy for a while. Yeah, with, like, saucers for eyes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why are you wearing sunglasses at night, son? <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing I can't fix. Anyway, yeah. so we veered off into one of my drug stories. Sorry about that. Yeah, no. Well, I've never told that one publicly, I don't think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, mine was pretty, pretty powerful, you know. Um, and again, even from before I drank the brew, similar to you. Just oh, really? Feeling, just the feeling in the air, uh, like on the drive over to his house, it was like the sky started to change and there were all these like forks of lightning coming down. Mm. And when we got there, it was kind of like, okay, you hang out in the garden and sort of just wait. People do their flowering bath, so you kind of go into a shower, shower place and take off all your clothes and um, use this flower water, like with petals in it, mm. and sort of set your intention and, and wash and sort of oh, clean yourself. Nice. So you kind of take turns doing that, and everyone's really quiet. And then it started to rain, and it was just these like big drops on the garden. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and then we go inside and the sun's pretty much set at that point. It's dark and take turns going up and taking your, your brew. Um, and I unfortunately lost my bucket from the very beginning, my puke bucket. I didn't know which one was mine. I didn't want to steal someone. So yeah. from the get-go, I was like, I don't have a puke bucket. Oh, boy. Which ended up being okay. No I, safety I net. actually didn't puke for really? the whole night. Yeah. Wow. Um, but yeah, it took the brew, which tasted kind of like, how would you describe it? Like mar liquefied Marmite mixed with like dirt and lemon, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> Is that pretty accurate? Uh, and kind of that sour, slithery. Yeah. Well, as an American, I'm not familiar with Marmite. Marmite? I know okay. what it is. I know it's, isn't that an Australian thing? 
Uh, they like the Vegemite. Oh, Vegemite. But it's the same shit. It's, yeah. yeah, it's, what, what's it made out of? Uh, it's, it's you know, I wish I could tell gross. you. It's like a black, gloopy paste yeah. with B vitamins in it yeah. to counteract the But definitely the, the dirt. I can relate the to dirt the dirt. The dirt and the lemon, kind of? Yeah. It's sour. Yeah. Yeah, and so I drank that, just that one small cup, and sort of laid down on my mat and from the very beginning I started to feel uh, there it almost felt like there was you know the feeling of like a cat stepping onto your bed just those mm. light little steps yeah that was sort of the first signal that I got where it felt like there was some little animal like a cat sort of climbing onto my my mat with me right and I opened my eyes and of course there's no cat there's nothing there yeah um, but then it started, I started to have visions of really strong, important people in my life kind of pop up. So mm. uh, like an old guidance counselor, um, someone that I met when I was sick years ago, and he ended up dying, but he told me I was going to be okay. And he was kind of this pivotal person in my life back then, and he, an image of him showed up quite clearly. And uh, Nelson Mandela had just died two days before. So I was a in vision Mozambique. Of him. Oh, were you? Yeah, okay. I was in the same part of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's recent. That's last year. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. So he sort of showed up, and and uh, and then it was kind of like you know all the colors and the sort of patterns and dragon-like, all the typical you know insect-like, dragon-like right. images, um, kind of going inside, and and it would kind of. It would, she, I want to say she, because it felt very much like a female spirit. Mm. And she even showed herself as like a big wolf head at one point. Mm. Um, and she would kind of always bring me to this dark death place. So even though it was a beautiful experience, I had some really hard images, dark images. It would go to kind of this death darkness and I'd, my whole body would get chilled like it had been iced. And then from there would come like the most gorgeous, beautiful images of love and light and showing me things about, you know, my brother that were really, that was really beautiful, healing kind of like an ex-relationship issue. Um, you know, I asked it, uh, I had cancer when I was 21. I sort of, I didn't even think I was going to ask this question to her, but I sort of posed it, you know, why did I have cancer? And the way that the responses would come, the answers would come, it's not the typical way you get an answer in real life, but the knowledge is sort of like downloaded into you, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. It's just like to show you love. It's just there suddenly. Yeah, it's yeah. just there and you, you understand it so deeply. Yeah. Um, and the answer so was to, to show, show me love. You love. Yeah, to mm. show me how to love and to show me what love is. And I guess, you know, because of the challenges of that experience, that that was very true. Um, and is the man who said you were going to be all right, he's someone that you met when you were yes. being treated? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and just showing me just, and, and then almost like there were little, it <laughs> sounds so crazy, but like, spirits of some kind like ancient youthful spirits but that were like really old mm. really ancient and wise and they kind of like fly you to different areas in your mind in this other world of you know what are showing you landing on different issues that you have or different parts of your body that need to be healed and you know at one point the shaman came over to me and we all had to sit up and he does this thing where he like blows smoke into the top of your head and mm. um and i felt very viscerally that there were these 
like white light through my body, like healing my entire body. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people report that. Have you like, heard that before? Oh, yeah, it like, was incredible. Like there's a cellular healing. Cellular healing. On. And it yeah. was like, I don't know what's going on right now, and I don't even need to. I'm just going to let this happen. Right. This is amazing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, I, I think it's unlike any other hallucinogen, particularly in the, that sense that it's, like you can take mushrooms or LSD or whatever, and, and you'll, you'll come face to face with your demons generally, mm-hmm. if you allow that to happen, if you're in the right kind of environment and you're, you're you know, feel safe enough to, to do that. But with ayahuasca, it feels, it, it feels kind of random with other hallucinogens, I think. You, you hit those things and mm-hmm. it's important and you'll, you'll have, an, Again, I'm now, neither one of us is recommending this to anyone. No, definitely Because if, if you're in a tough spot in your life or you're, you know, you're going through heavy shit, like this isn't something no, you want to do. No, this is not something that you just do. Yeah, yeah no. Right. Um, but if you're doing it in the right context, you know, Timothy Leary always talked about set and setting. Set and setting, you know, yeah. Like you want to be, setting refers to who you're with, where you are, you want to be in nature, you want to be with people you trust, you want to be in a safe place where you're not going to have to deal with any weirdness, yeah. you want your cell phones turned off, you don't want to deal with cops, you know, you want to be like somewhere where you can just be happy and relaxed and, and set, set is how you are internally. Are you mm-hmm. in a good place in your life? You're feeling all right. Now, nobody's ever in a perfect place and we always have shit to deal with, but you want to tried you know your mother died two weeks ago you don't want to be taking hallucinogen Mm -hmm. but what i was going to say is that you know you get a little disclaimer out there (laughs) a little legal disclaimer (laughs) but uh with ayahuasca it seems that the substance itself has an intelligence Mm -hmm. and sort of takes you where you need to be yeah exactly and it also i've i've read a lot of reports and spoken to people who feel it does the same thing physiologically that you you know if you've got a liver problem it knows Mm -hmm. it takes you there and Mm -hmm. shows it to you you know and psychologically if your issue you've got a you know you're hang hung up on sexual things or your fear of death or your your relationship with your father like whatever it is it takes you right there and like this is what you need to look at yeah it's you know the the old saw is you get 10 years of psychotherapy in 10 hours right yeah yeah it's there does appear to be some sort of intelligence within it Mm -hmm, which is why they call it a teacher plant yeah but i do think other psychedelics have that aspect to them yeah I mean depending on how you consume them I think if you were Mm. to take I don't know if you've ever done this but take psilocybin or mushrooms in us in the same way where you take it in a very ceremonial setting Mm. with an intention and right you know I think you'll find that um, it's also a bit of a teacher like it does it will show you things the same way that ayahuasca does yeah yeah well the Huichole Indians have a beautiful ritual around the use of peyote, yeah. you know, where they hike into the desert and I think it's a, a week or 10 days where they're moving around in the desert gathering peyote. And of course, the first thing they say is you won't see peyote unless you're ready 
Mm-hmm. It appears to you they call it el, el maestro, right? Mescalito. The, or mescalito, right? <laughs> yeah. The teacher. Yeah. So the teacher appears when the student is ready, as the Buddhists say, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so if you're out in the desert trying to find uh, peyote, you won't see it unless it wants you to see it. And But every night around the fire, they have this um, ritual where you confess all the fucked up shit that you did in the last year. Wow. All your lies and your, you know, thieving and, your, you know, whatever bullshit you yeah. did, you lay it out. And it's almost like a Catholic confessional yeah. thing. Um, you know, you do it then, everything's cool, mm-hmm. nobody will hold it against you. But it's to clean your spirit before you you take this stuff yeah. and you go into those spaces of you don't want to be carrying any dark shit with you when no. you go in there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very interested in peyote. That's one I've I've never tried. But I read recently. Have you read uh, the teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda? Yeah. yeah. I just read that. Actually, they finished it the night before I went to the Joshua Tree recently. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't know if what you think of that book. If it, you think it's all fiction or <laughs> well, <laughs> pretty wild story. Stanley actually knew Castaneda. Oh yeah. Very few people knew him. He yeah. was a very shadowy character. And uh, I was having dinner in Topanga Canyon a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and the guy whose house I was at uh, said that Castaneda used to live downstairs. Huh. So yeah, it's weird. I think the consensus at this point is that um, what he did was he took some legitimate anthropological information and wrote a story. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, Because uh, that book was such, well, the whole series of books were huge bestsellers. And so um, a lot of people did their graduate research, like trying to track down exactly you know, who he was talking to, who was Don Juan, where, what mm-hmm. tribe was this, and, you know, did these, these descriptions actually pertain to other tribes, not to the tribe he was talking about? And so there's a, a sort of a mishmash of cultural information there. Um, so my understanding is the consensus view of that is that it's fiction based upon a very sophisticated knowledge of yeah. the anthropology of northern Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. And some real experiences that he must have had with psychedelics, I think. I mean, the yeah. way they were described, I think I think he's definitely had experienced something. Yeah. Whether or not it was exactly yeah. the way he portrayed it. Is, right. Yeah. Right. And the whole idea of him being, you know, studying under Don Juan and you yeah. know, that seems to have not really like, was that, been the case. Was that yaki Indian even real? You right. Know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was an interesting phenomenon, though. Yeah. I had a very strange experience with peyote, similar to the one with ayahuasca, but I'm not going to tell that story. Okay. Because we're here to talk about you. Oh, okay. Um, are you comfortable talking about the cancer experience? Sure, yeah. What? How old were you? Uh, I was 21, um, and I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, which is a cancer of the lymphatic system. Right. Um, but caught it very soon so they call it stage 2a so there were no um you know i wasn't feeling tired i wasn't feeling sick how they get but you? i found a lump on my sort of clavicle here uh-huh, right um and then they do the whole biopsy and that's how they found it mm. yeah so i did have uh chemo and radiation um yeah did you lose and your I, hair i didn't lose my hair and 
the doctors were shocked that I didn't lose my hair. Mm. I was, it was a very aggressive cocktail of drugs that they had used on me. And I, at the time, I went through sort of a, it was called the Center for Integrated Healing in Vancouver. It's called something else now. I can't remember what it is now. But basically an Eastern meets Western approach mm. to healing where I, I went off like coffee, alcohol, red meat, dairy, like super strict diet and, you know, was taking a lot of supplements, reishi mushroom, things to kind of boost my immune system. Mm. And I think that actually really did help me. You know, I, I went through it and didn't feel all that bad and mm. didn't lose my hair. And were you came out unscathed. Uh, what was the prognosis? Were you like facing significant risk of dying? No, or? I don't think so. Um, when you catch that early, Hodgkin's disease, when you catch it early, it's got a very good prognosis. I oh, think it's okay. like 80% or something. So I had a still, 20% chance still. of dying. And you're 21, that's... Yeah, I was young, yeah. 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 Did you, f looking back on it now, in light of this experience with ayahuasca, what did you learn about love? I think... Um, I don't know. I don't know if I want to get too deep into it because it's probably more related to family issues. Mm. But um, I think it opened me up as a person, just the way ayahuasca did. I, you know, the way I was before pre-cancer and post-cancer, I feel like I'm, I was a different person. Yeah. You know, and I think you have that throughout your life for a number of that you go through a number of stages where yeah. you don't even recognize yourself before. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those. It's, I guess you can almost call it like a peak experience in life. Yeah. Where, yeah, you, you do really change. And for me personally, I think it kind of opened me up. I think I became a little more open of a person, a little more open to love. And, and then with ayahuasca, even more so. Yeah. You know, just feeling more connected to people around me. And, um, yeah. Yeah, I, th I feel like the closer we get to death, the more alive we are. Yeah. Which is why people are riding motorcycles and jumping out of airplanes exactly. and all that. Yeah. But it seems like another way to do it is to work in a hospital or mm -hmm. to, um, you know, ayahuasca and, and other drugs that bring you face to face with the reality, you know, because we're yeah. all walking around in this cloud of assumed immortality and like, oh, I'm going to live forever. I'll get to it tomorrow. And, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll tell her I forgive her when I get around to it. She'll be here forever. And, you know, the more we're reminded that that's an illusion, the more we yeah. do the shit that matters, which then makes our lives more interesting. Yeah. And, and I almost feel comforted by the thought of thinking that I'm going to die now, though. Right. Does that sound weird? I mean, I, when I remind myself that I'm going to die, it gives me this like feeling of power almost. Like yeah. I, I feel more alive. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I do. It's funny. I've had that feeling, you know, for most of my life. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's been comforting to me forever, but in different ways. I've noticed that the, the form of the comfort changes. Okay. So now, so now I'm in my mid fifties. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes I look at my life and it's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, what? I mean, I remember talking with a friend when I was writing Sex at Dawn, and this guy's an investment banker. He's got lots of money, and you know, he's like set up. He's a really great guy. But we've taken 
dramatically different paths in life, you mm. know. And, you know, he said, uh, so what are you going to do if this book doesn't sell? Like, you know, what, like, what's your plan, you know? Because <laughs> I had no money. I had no, yeah. like, prospects or anything. And I said, well, I don't know. It's if, if it gets that bad, I'll just die. Yeah. That's always and he's a like, good thought. What do you mean? <laughs> and he was horrified. I was like, "Well, <laughs> dude, I mean, it's just a game, you yeah. know, and it ends. Yeah, so, exactly. you know, if things get that bad, yeah. you just die." <laughs> <laughs> or you just remind yourself, "Well, this book isn't working out, but I'm going to die." So, so, how bad cares? is that? Who cares? <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, you know the theme song to this podcast. Yeah. You're going to die yeah, one that's day. That's a great song. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I feel like that's the message, right? Because yeah. it all takes place. You know, there's only light in the context of darkness. You can't. Right. Yeah. Um, so what's, what's, how are you going to integrate this knowledge of the healing potential of hallucinogens? Are there, what's going on in Canada? Are things changing here legally? Well, legally it's still a sort of upward battle, but things are changing. Um, there's this kind of group forming at the center where I work that's very interested in psychedelic research. Right. And, and Gabor Mate. Um, Gabor Mate. Is involved in that in some respect. I yeah. Know. I have met him. He's a great person. Yeah. yeah. He's a um, very interesting guy. I, I wrote him an email, like filled out that email contact form on his website thinking he will never reply to this. This is like a yeah. 0% chance of getting a response. And he phoned me back like 30 minutes later. Wow. And I had this like almost hour-long conversation with Gabor Mate on the phone where he basically like deciphered my second ayahuasca experience which was awful we won't have to get into that but he basically helped integrate that experience for me on the phone just not without even knowing me just, that's great yeah and then I've met him a couple times in person yeah he's fantastic um, so the, there is a lot going on in Vancouver um, the center will likely be the site for the next phase three clinical trial the MAPS clinical trial for MDMA. Uh, I was going to ask if you were involved with MAPS. Uh, not directly, but um, I work with people that are collaborating with them, and so that will likely be happening, hopefully, 2017, start. MDMA. MDMA, right. yeah. Yeah, that's, I really love that stuff. I've, been, I've known Rick since the 90s, the mid-90s, I think. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, it's kind of like your experience with Galvor. I. I was, he lived in Boston at the time. I was in graduate school and I was visiting my sister who lived there and I thought, oh, this guy Rick lives here and I don't know. So I, I sent him an email, I guess, if, if there was email then or called, I don't remember what. But he said, uh, Yo, come, you know, come over for lunch. I'd like to meet you or whatever. And I, I just thought like we could have a coffee. I don't even yeah. remember what my excuse for calling him was, but I really just wanted to meet him, you know. and. Um, yeah, we ended up going up to his office in his house and getting high. It was the first time I'd ever used a vaporizer. Oh, he, had yeah. a, he had a volcano, which you know <laughs> I'd never seen. And uh, then I ended up, at, you know, hanging out there and met his kids and his wife. And I, I didn't leave till like midnight, yeah. I think. It awesome. Was, it was great. Yeah. yeah. And then he invited me. Um, like a month later, I got yeah, there was email because I was in Spain and. Um, uh, yeah, this was 98, I think, or 99. He invited me to uh, an ecstasy conference in Israel. Okay, yeah. Uh, to translate for a Spanish scientist who was going to be there. 
And uh, so, yeah, the maps paid for me to go to this ecstasy conference in Israel. It was fantastic. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Best like end of summer story ever. You know, like, what'd you do this summer? Uh, you know, I did an ecstasy conference. Yeah, yeah. All expenses paid trip to Israel. That's yeah. Awesome. At the Dead Sea Hyatt. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so you're going to be speaking. What are you going to be talking about? Yeah. So I'm going to be talking about a study that I've just started, uh, not published yet. And it's looking at lifetime psychedelic drug use among sex workers in Vancouver and seeing if it can be protective against incidents of suicidality. So suicide attempts or ideation. Interesting. Yeah. Because I imagine suicide is elevated among that population. It's quite suicidality is quite high. Yeah. Yeah. Like 50% of the cohort needed to be excluded because they had already experienced some type of suicidality. Which includes... Which includes thinking about or attempting But suicide. doesn't everyone think about suicide? Really? When you and I were I just mean, talking about, eh, if things get bad, I can just die. I wasn't really thinking about killing myself. Well, I was. <laughs> <laughs> How else am I going to just die? Yeah. I'm going to jump off mm. a damn cliff. Right. Yeah. No, okay. I mean, that's, I, I think I've told this story in the podcast before, but I, when I was in graduate school, I applied for a job uh, as a suicide counselor and a suicide hotline, oh, yeah. which was kind of a common thing for people to do in San Francisco and, yeah. you know, graduate programs in psychology. And I got to the, I, everything was fine. I did two or three interviews and then I got to the sort of the final, um, uh, you know, the, what's the word, sort of not just a formality, you know, with the yeah. big boss, right? Because I'd already been approved. And he just said, oh, yeah, one last question. Um, can you imagine any situation in which suicide would be a good response, an appropriate response? And I said, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and he was like, well, yeah, sorry, this isn't going to work right. out. But, I mean, come on. Yeah, sure. I guess a more serious contemplation of suicide in relation to feeling like you've got nothing going on in your life. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, you know, there's been a couple of studies, large studies that have come out recently in the U.S. You know, I think they use the National Health Survey. So I think it's about 200,000 uh, adults in the U.S., and they found that psychedelic, naturalistic psychedelic drug use, so not in a clinical setting at all, right. was associated with reduced psychological distress and suicidality. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, I imagine. There's also, I remember reading, uh, was it in Brazil or Peru, there were studies of people who use ayahuasca uh, mm-hmm. ritualistically. I think maybe it was Brazil, because I think it was associated with one of the churches, uh-huh. Santo Daime or UDV, um, that they had much lower rates of suicide and um, addiction, yeah, yeah. drug addiction. Yeah. yeah, there's evidence that the sort of ritualistic use, particularly of ayahuasca, is uh, healthy yeah. psychologically. exactly, yeah. And now there's, you know, there's more and more randomized control trials happening right. to show that uh, use of psychedelics like psilocybin, LSD, are associated with, you know, increased well-being, decreased, um, you know, treatment-resistant depression, post-traumatic stress, things like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this evidence is sort of building. And yeah. 
Well, good. You're in yeah. the right place to catch this wave. Yeah, I think so. I'm really happy to see this happening. I, you know, for a long time I felt like it was never going to happen, and now it seems I to be happening, happening pretty fast. Yeah. 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 Good. Cool. Do you have a website or something where people can? I mean, I, I looked you. I googled you. I saw your UBC site. Yeah. Um, I don't really. You don't have your own. I had like a blog that I started when I was in South Africa. Mm. Um, it's been pretty inactive for the last couple of years, but if people <laughs> want to look at it, they can. <laughs> Blogs can get that way. Yeah, that's good. No, I like to have people on who aren't selling anything. Yeah, that's no. good. So, Elena. That's right. Argento. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you for doing this. Thanks. It was great. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does, please direct them through the link on my page chrisryanphd.com you click on that baby once bookmark the landing page on amazon and then eight to ten percent of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones thank you to basin and range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast very funky little tune there uh called the bright side of the sun i believe you can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com if you want to talk about the podcast with with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at Carsey Blanton. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch 
won't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? Running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say. It's a big deal if you wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.